Hi, Watermark. I have our scripture reading today, which is going to be from Galatians 2, 19 through 21. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Hi. Let me get set up here. I also just remembered to, uh, I use my phone to, to do the slides, and I put my phone on Do Not Disturb because my mother last time <laughs> texted me letting me know she wasn't going to church. We had a good laugh about that, but I removed her from my favorites, <laughs> so it won't come through even if it's Do Not Disturb, because <laughs> you never know. Um, so, uh, also, also, um, we have a prayer team. We have a prayer team. Yes, we have a prayer team. Yeah, give it up. And so I just want to remind people that we do have this set up. Uh, there, there's typically back there in that room before and after service. So if you have a need, if you have something that we, you feel like, you know, comfortable, uh, us praying about, check it out. Maybe a good, maybe a good thing. Actually, it will be a good thing. Um, so yeah, we got people back there that are, that are passionate about that. So uh, check it out. So today we are going to talk about the embodied life. Um, many of us, if you're like me, you might've spent uh, some time in churches that had sort of a strange uh, outlook on the body. Um, like physical bodies. There are like negative connotations tied to it. Um, that the body is sort of inherently bad, right? You hear words like flesh floating around. Raise your hand if you've like been part of those type of situations, right? Mostly everybody. All right, cool. I'm on the right track. Um, so in a lot of ways, you were sort of made to feel like, you know, you're your body was sort of split from like the immaterial, right? The soul, the spirit. Uh, and that not much good can come out of it. Not much good can come out of this fleshly, you know, body. Um, where I came from, like, if you messed up and, and said something you shouldn't have said or did something you shouldn't have done, you know, in Spanish, you would say, tu estás en la carne. I hear some laughs so you guys understand what I'm saying. You are in the flesh. Carne asada is what we used to call it. <laughs> you are in the carne asada. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, man, and, and you know what it did? It actually, like, it, 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 it just throws you off, right? We have this, we sort of understand flesh and we tie it to the body. And, and when you hear that type of language, it, it really makes it difficult to have an appreciation for the physical. It, it makes it difficult to appreciate this body that God has created and, and sort of its role in the mission of God in our lives and the story of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the embodied life in Christ and why the body matters. And we are going to help the Apostle Paul out a little bit here because homeboy gets a lot of, a lot of flack for this. 
So we're going to actually, we're going to try to like, uh, you know, I'm going to try to like disentangle Paul's actual view of the body, and you may actually have an appreciation for it. And then we're going to talk about, well, that, this is actually going to be first. We're going to talk about dualism um, and just why our bodies matter to God. So with that, let's, um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and this space to share your word. And um, we just invite you, I just invite you, Holy Spirit, to be present, be present among us as we listen, as we receive, as we reflect. Help us to be a people that can understand how important our bodies are to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I kind of already shared this story about la carne. Um, yeah, so basically, you know, you step out of line, and it was sort of pegged to that. It was sort of pegged to the flesh, right, this, this carnality. And so all of this sort of goes back to, um, goes back to Plato, goes back to uh, sort of Greek philosophy and our, our, our marriage, the, the church's marriage with uh, what, what, I, what I'm going to talk about here is anthropological dualism, um, so what is dualism? Dualism is when you divide two things, two principles, um, two ideas, and, and make them sometimes antithetical to one another or simply opposite to one another. So for example, in theology, a dualism would be someone who believes that good and evil are independent and more or less sort of equal forces or equal in power. Um, and it's not just in theology where we see dualism, we see it everywhere, but like in psychology, dualism in psychology might be like the sort of like pegging the mind and the brain and, and making them into two separate things, right? That is a dualism that we might come across in like psychology, in the realm, domain of psychology. Now in the Bible, you'll find several of these dualisms, some that are accepted and, and just taken for granted in ancient Judaism and the early Christians some that sort of are marginally accepted, and then some that, are, that they would just flat out deny, but that historically the church has adopted. And so I'm going to present to you guys um, a checklist here. Well, it's not, it doesn't really look like a checklist, but this is, um, you guys have heard of N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar. Um, he actually created a, a, dual, a, a dualism checklist, right? And these first four are the four types that, that would sort of comfortably fit at home with the ancient Jewish people and the early Christians. We have the heavenly duality, right? That, that not only God exists, but angels and, and other heavenly beings that might be opposed to one another. This is a, this is a dualism. Uh, and then there's the, the theological or cosmological duality between God and the world, the creator and the creature. And then we have the moral duality between good and evil, right? And then the eschatological duality between the present evil age and the age to come, right? The, the, the present evil age and the age to come are sort of the, the, how the ancient Jewish people used to see sort of God's timeline, to, to, to simplify it. And so all of these dualities, the ancient Jewish people would have taken for granted, but none of the following they would consider valid, yet they have sort of infiltrated the historical church. And we have sort of this theological duality where there's a good God versus this bad God. It's a very, we get this from the Gnostics, right? The Gnostics believe that there was sort of this cosmological struggle, battle, tension between the bad God of the Old Testament and the good God of the New Testament. Then there's the, the uh, dualism between the spiritual and the material, 
And we're going to talk a little bit about that and how that sort of sparked a lot of things. And then we have the dualism between the body and the soul or the spirit, right? Where, where the human body is sort of split into all of these, into these separate parts, and it's really the body versus the soul and the spirit. And so we're going to talk about anthropological dualism. Dualismo antropologico. That's your Spanish lesson today. My wife would be proud. Especially that second word. Um, so arguably the most debated of these dualisms in church history is this anthropological dualism. The soul and, or the spirit is split into parts. Originally it was introduced by this guy, Greek philosopher Plato, who sort of imagined existence, the world, the universe, through this dualistic lens. Most of Plato's philosophy was, was dualistic. And, and it was his view, the, the, the cosmological view, or the, 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 this dualism, that the material world and everything in it was inferior to the spiritual world or the immaterial world that, that sort of caused this anthropological dualism between the body and the soul and the spirit to emerge out of. Plato believed that the soul existed eternally and enters the body to give it life. And the most striking thing about, about Plato's view is that the body is the negative to the soul or the spirit's positive. Plato went as far as to call the body the coffin of the soul. Really harsh, Plato. For Plato, the soul was associated with life. It, it sort of animated the person. And the body was associated with death and decay. And so in Plato's anthropological dualism, the body was inferior to the soul. The human person was, was split, body, soul, body, spirit, or body, soul, spirit, uh, earthly, divine, death, life. And so Plato, for Plato, there was sort of this hierarchy existing within the human. And so right around the second century, we start to see some of the, some of the, some of the early church fathers use Plato's language to articulate and communicate their theology. And they did this because they were in a predominantly Greco-Roman environment, a Greco-Roman context. And they did what a lot of us still do nowadays is try to communicate the gospel message in a way that can relate to the people of their time. But I wouldn't give them a pass entirely. They were just trying to relate the gospel in ways that made sense to, those, to the people in that world, right? And we, we, you know, Tommy's been going through Romans and we, we, cap, we sort of captured, how, you know, sort of the makeup of the Roman house churches, right? Now, and, and the thing is this, is that often when we, when we do this, when we try to translate or when we translate the gospel message into our context, the message can get distorted. We see that now, right? And so that's what happens. The church fathers sort of fall in line with Plato and insist on this strict hierarchical distinction between the soul, spirit, and the body, where the human is, is, is split up into these, these parts, spirit, soul, body. And ironically, this opened up the church to, to an even more Gnostic-like view of the body, where the, where the body is actually pitted against the spirit, denigrated to something that the believer will eventually shed in the afterlife, making the saving work of Christ into something that actually only affects the soul and not the body. That's an entirely different sermon. So, Luke Timothy Johnson, 
New Testament scholar, he says, Christianity's repulsion of Gnosticism, which the early church fathers spent a lot of time refuting the Gnostics, but here they are. Christianity's repulsion of Gnosticism did not make it immune from the virus or a virus of suspicion toward the body that had been profound, pervasive, and permanent. Deeply influenced by the Greek moral tradition from the second century forward, Christian theologians insisted on a strict hierarchical distinction between spirit and soul. Now, there are a lot of side effects that came out of this dualism that the early church adopted. The biggest one is that it caused the church to minimize the importance of our flesh and blood bodies, even vilify it, turn it into a bad thing for the believer, where the body becomes like this prison for the soul, for the spirit, something that keeps us from our true self, something that is played off against the soul and the spirit, made like into that mischievous cousin that you don't want your kids hanging around with. Um, As a matter of fact, no, I'm not going to go there. We're on TV. I'm not, we're on Facebook. Um, and the soul and the spirit are raised to this level of importance. And, it, and, it, and it's not that the soul and the spirit don't matter. They certainly do and they're important. But, but when we prioritize the invisible over the visible, the soul over the body, this has catastrophic consequences. When the body doesn't matter, it becomes easy to dehumanize others. It becomes easy to care less about the world that we live in, the people groups that surround us, and it just becomes easy to just see past people. I've experienced that, and many of you have. And so now, one of the, one of the most unfortunate victims of this is Paul. Because once Paul took hold of the imagination of the church fathers, Paul was looked at as sort of this Christian Plato. And in many ways, they began interpreting Paul through this Plato-influenced lens, a lens that is almost an exact opposite of the ancient Jewish lens, a worldview that Paul grew up with. And and, and we can't deny that that dualisms existed in, in ancient Judaism. They did. I showed you that earlier. But the ancient Jewish people never split humans into parts, the soul or nefesh, which is nefesh is the, is the Hebrew word for soul, but it actually means organic life, which included the body. In fact, the popular Jewish word shalom, raise your hand if you've heard shalom, all right? It means peace, right? But for the Jewish people, it also meant an embodied wholeness, wholeness within oneself, within their body, and with everything else that makes up that person, an embodied wholeness where the body was very much a part of God's good creation and important to the overall plan for humanity, God's plan for humanity. And we get more into that later. And so now we know that Paul wrote a lot, most of the New Testament, so there's plenty of material to sort of look for inklings of platonic dualism in Paul's writings. But it was Paul's writings on the flesh and the soul or spirit that many of his early interpreters would read with dualistic eyes. They assumed that Paul had a dualistic understanding of the body and the soul, and and that like Plato, the body was inferior to the soul. Paul mentions flesh often, but it's in Romans 7 and 8 in particular where he is most often accused of being called or, or being a dualist who sees the body as this negative part of a person. In Romans 7, 14 through 15, and I skip around here, 
In verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. So now, no longer I am the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, not do, but I practice the very evil. This is like a freestyle thing here. Paul, what you doing? Um, but I practice very evil. I'm like all over the place. But I practice the very evil I do not want. It's like a tongue twister. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I no longer... I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And then, of course, the famous 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And so this whole argument sort of hinges on Paul's use of the Greek word sarx, which is understood to mean flesh, and how it apparently suggests that the body is in some way evil. Now, remember remember the Plato quote that the coffin, he believed that the body was the coffin of the soul, that the soul is imprisoned by the body and and longs to be set free. And so people read Paul here in Romans and elsewhere, and they hear similar language and claim that Paul believed the same thing that Plato did. We hear Paul say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And it becomes hard to deny that Paul didn't have sort of a Plato-inspired understanding of the body, that Paul's theology wasn't influenced by Plato. It's hard to deny that. Because we see this language, we just automatically assume maybe Paul was anti-body. But when Paul uses the word flesh or sarks in the negative sense, New Testament scholar Paula Gooder, check her out, she's amazing. She has a great description of what Paul is talking about when he mentions the word flesh. And when it's used in the negative, he's talking about the power of corruption in the present evil age, not the body itself. So Paul is articulating to a majority Greco-Roman context the fracturing power of sin in the world often played out in our bodies, not the body itself. I emphasize that. Paul's not talking about our bodies. He's talking about the corrupting power of the present evil age often affecting us in our bodies, played out through our bodies. In fact, on the opposite end, when Paul uses the word spirit, He's often referring to the power of God to transform our lives, including our bodies at the resurrection in the age to come. That's another sermon. So flesh and spirit are contrasted as two powers linked to the old creation and the new creation, respectively. Two powers that can affect every dimension of life. Two powers that lead to different ways of living, but that they aren't two parts of the human person. Paul didn't believe that. There are simply two ways of living in our bodies, either as someone of the old creation or someone of the new creation that Christ has inaugurated following his resurrection. And living in this new creation includes the body. The body mattered to Paul. And so for Paul, the body wasn't the problem. It's bodies ruled by the old creation that he had a problem with. Bodies that oppose the way of being in Christ and his spirit. Bodies that oppose Christ's likeness. Bodies that oppose Christ crucified. In fact, in other places, Paul speaks positively of bodies. In 1 Corinthians 6.15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 19 through 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Which there, when he talks about bodies... 
he's not just talking about the body of Christ or that, that community. He's also talking about our bodies. There's, there's, there's some debate there, but he's actually talking about both. Um, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then in Galatians 2, 19, 19 through 20, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live in God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the most compelling case for Paul not having a Plato-influenced view of the body is his naming the Christian community after the body of Christ. The body of the one who, only decades earlier, was walking around on earth, in the flesh. And I didn't have this, I don't have a slide for this, but in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 27, you can check it out. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And he goes on to use like this fantastical language where the the foot is talking to the ear, and the ear is talking to the mouth, and like all these... Crazy. Um, But he's trying to sort of talk about the unity of the body of Christ and how the body is this beautiful model of that unity and that beauty. And then in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so this strange metaphor that Paul uses really is a glimpse into Paul's view of the body, our physical bodies, a view that was authentically Jewish. Not platonic, not Gnostic, but Jewish. That our bodies and the invisible parts of us are, as my friend Paula Gooder calls them, an integrated whole. Something that cannot be separated into individual parts like Plato would have done. But Paul, the point, for Paul, the point of this metaphor is that our bodies are how we relate with one another and how the image of God is displayed out into the world. And so bodies are a perfect example. Our physical bodies for Paul was a perfect example metaphorically of how Christians are to live together in unity and love. It is with our bodies that the world will run into the presence of Christ. Not with the immaterial, but with the material. People don't run into my soul. People don't run into my spirit. They run into my body. And it is with my body that people can see God. And so I know that Paul gets like a lot of flack through history. And trust me, I've had problems with Paul. A while back, I had problems with Paul. But when we take out all of the historical assumptions and false dualisms that were pinned to him, we actually get a beautiful, holistic, healthy picture of the body. We get a view of the body that is very much Christ-like. And so this leads us to Jesus. Because where with Paul, it it takes a lot of work to uncover sort of his true understanding of the body and bodies. With Jesus, it doesn't take as many mental gymnastics, I guess, to see how valuable the bodies were to Jesus. 
And after all, Jesus is the embodiment of God, the fullness of God in the flesh. And so when we read the Gospels and see all of Jesus' exploits, we get caught up on the spiritual and theological aspects of his life and ministry, but we can't ignore how he elevated the value, dignity, and purpose of physical bodies. And so I want to bring your attention to um, one example in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1, 40 through 41. And so at this point, like word was spreading that this mysterious Galilean rabbi was going around healing people and casting out demons. And, and so cur- you know, like curiosity was rising and his reputation was like preceding, himself, preceding him. And, and this leper comes up to him and begs Jesus to heal him. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately, The leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Now, in that time, in that world, there were were quarantine zones for the sick. And according to ancient Hebraic purity laws, anyone with a skin condition was placed in these zones, quarantined from the rest of society, designated ceremonially unclean, unable to participate in synagogue, unfit to worship Yahweh, and any travel that they took had to be occupied with chance of unclean, unclean. So if I had leprosy in that time, if I moved from one place to another, I had to yell unclean, unclean, so that I could alert passersby that I was sick. Now the fact that this man came to Jesus indicates that Jesus either entered into one of these zones or the man walked out of the zone. Either way, we got problems. Which would mean, if this man walked out of this zone, it would mean that this man approached Jesus yelling, unclean, unclean. But what's most fascinating about this scene is the man's question. He didn't ask to be healed. He asked to be made clean. Because he had the Jewish understanding that his body was a part of the larger body of his people. And that this body, his body, was very much a part of what made him, him. His body was tied to his identity, to a culture, to a language, to a faith, to an art form. He wanted it all back. And so Jesus touches him, violating Jewish law, makes himself unclean, as well, joining this man in his social status, showing him how important his body is to him, that he's willing to step into his condition, his social position, and stand in solidarity with him, showing him with his own body the worth of this person's body, that it's worth Jesus publicly defiling himself. It's worth violating Jewish custom that his body is valuable to God, that he is seen and worthy of touch. Imagine the cognitive dissonance that this man would have felt after years of being quarantined, and here comes this man and just puts it all out on the line religiously and touches him. He didn't see past him. And so Jesus here shows us the people of God, 
that it's with our bodies that we tell the story of Jesus. And that story is shared through presence. It's stepping into someone's station in life and showing them their worth and their dignity. It's paying attention to those who feel invisible. It's drawing close to them. It's not looking past them or or seeing through them. It's with our bodies that we show others that they matter and that they are a gift. Jesus shows us time and again in the Gospels of how crucial the body is to God's story. That our bodies aren't inherently bad. They aren't inferior to the soul or the spirit, but that they are very much a part of the life that we live in Christ, now in the present and in the age to come. And so when we wish harm or when we inflict physical or emotional or spiritual violence or, or, or when we root for war because our rights are at risk or when, we relate, or when we remain silent when someone is wronged or when we purposely don't feel welcomed around, you know, when we purposely make others not feel welcomed or when we look past someone because they don't look like us, we don't realize it, but we are defacing the image of God in them. And devaluing that person's body and everything that's tied to that body, their identity and everything else that makes them who they are. The very thing that God uses to show himself to the world. It's it's through our bodies that we show the presence of Christ in the world. Years ago when I was in seminary, once a year we go to this intensive uh, for a week and it was my first time at seminaries, and I took my family with me because it's Chicago and they wanted a vacation. Um, <laughs> while I was in the books, they were not much, they were shopping. Um, so first day out of, the, first day out of class, uh, we were sort of challenged by our professor, David Fitch. You might have heard, him, heard, of, heard of him. He challenged us to do what he does. He wakes up every morning, goes into a McDonald's. Sort of quietly says, I open up space for you, spirit. Sits down, has a meal. And sometimes, God does something amazing. What what I used to call in my former tradition, divine appointments. Divine appointments? Nobody? (laughs) God winks. Um, (laughs) So, I left class that day and, you know, listen, I'm Caribbean and I needed a palomia steak. Um... Anybody know what a palomilla steak is? I just assume everybody knows what a palomilla steak is. Thin flank steak, come on. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, so I was craving a palomilla steak, and, and first of all, we're like in Wheaton. And I'm craving a Cuban meal. Not sure if that's going to happen in Wheaton. So uh, we were looking around, going on Yelp, doing that thing, and then we found one off to like this corner. And it was like a Monday around five, empty parking lot. Like, this is not a good sign. So we parked anyways, risked it. It said Cuban restaurant, let's try it out. They don't have a palomia steak. They are not a Cuban restaurant. Um, So we walk in, me and my family, and there's just one lady there. Maybe in her mid-60s, Latina, holding it down at the bar. Nobody else there, just her. So we walk in, and she's like, Pick a seat. I said, well, okay. Anywhere, really. Um, so we sit down, and then she comes to our table, because she was the owner, but also the waitress and the chef, because um, that's what we do. We multitask. Um, she comes to our table, 
And I'm like, listen, I'm craving a palomia steak sandwich. She's like, a what? I said, we got problems. <laughs> I looked over at my wife and I'm like, uh, might need to get out of here and just go to, you know, what is that place in Chicago, the famous uh, Luminati's. Um, so she's like, I don't know what a palomia steak is. I'm like, are you Cuban? She's like, no, but my husband is. And I said, okay. Um, well, it's a thin flank steak, you know, it's delicious and it's going to make me happy. So... <laughs> And she's like, oh, you mean this. And I forgot what word she used. Maybe my wife remembers, but I said, yeah, we'll go with that. So she goes out back, upset at me. I'm thinking, oh boy, she's going to put a little extra sauce on this. You already know. So she comes out and puts the, the plate right in front of me. And it looked good. It looked like a palomia steak. Puts it right in front of me. Takes up a chair and sits down in front of me like this. And I'm like... So I got to sit here and eat this thing. Were you staring at me? And she's like, yep, I want to see if it's good. So I started eating it. I'm like, mm, this is good. I mean, not like my grandmother's, but it was good. And she sits there. We're all sitting there eating. And then, mind you, before I entered in, I did what Fitch said. I opened up space for the spirit. You know, the magical formula. And sure enough, this lady just opened up about her life, how she had lost two daughters in the last two years, and how she had one remaining daughter with a disability that she couldn't find support for or provide for, and that she had lost her faith because her church had, uh, let's just say, treated her differently. She didn't feel welcomed anymore, and she just talking and talking and sharing and sharing and we were just there listening and I just felt the presence of God so heavily in that moment and it was through this embodied conversation and then we stood up we finished our meal we stood up we embraced as if she was my grandmother we prayed for her and then as we sort of detached from our embrace she held onto our, our, our hands and said, I haven't felt the presence of Christ like this in such a long time. This is church. Her words. And I'm, I don't say that to boast or brag or anything like that, because that was one of my first experiences, like legitimately having something that from the outside it seems simple, but the presence of God was so, so present there. And it was through this embodied conversation, this woman who in her own body had experienced so much, and that God used us, my wife and my children, to touch this woman in a way that made her feel like she had encountered God in that moment. And this is why bodies matter. And so I hope that if you have struggled or if you've been through situations where you have felt like your body is worthless, where your body has no value and no purpose, where, where it's been denigrated, I want you to know that God cares about your body. I want you to know that your body matters to God. And I want you to know that it's through your body that others will see Christ. Amen? Let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence in our lives. And sometimes we complicate it. Sometimes we, we want it to look a certain way. And it's... Sometimes it's just so simple, through a conversation, through a story being shared. And I've come to embrace 
that aspect of your love and your grace and your presence. That in most cases, it is through the sharing of stories, these embodied moments, that your presence is the most heavy. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for healing in those areas that others have harmed. And I pray, Father, that you would walk alongside us on this embodied journey. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could stand and uh, recite the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed, everybody. Oh, turn around. Say hello to somebody you don't normally say hello to. Shake their hand, fist bump them. If you feel comfortable, hug them, whatever. Just say hello. I'm